Hi everyone, I'm Les. And I'm Ashley. And you're listening to Anthropotamus, where we explore some of your favorite anthropology topics. Hi everyone, welcome to our latest episode of Anthropotamus. Today we're here with Dr. Khaled Rubai. We'll be discussing her article, Decentering Death, The War on Terror and the Less Than Lethal Paradigm. She is a cultural anthropologist and professor at Purdue, Purdue University, and studies the impact of war. Thank you again for being on our show today. Thank you for having me. So um, this this article hit a little bit when I read it because I was I wasn't there for us. I did deploy to Afghanistan. Um, I was on a provincial reconstruction team, um, and I know I'm gonna get a lot of heat for saying this from some people. But a month into deployment, it, you know, you could really feel that you were there doing nothing. <laughs> the article is really something I could relate to. I mean, nice to see somebody, people speaking up about it because we do, we get told a lot, you know, you're there for the hearts and minds of the people and you're there to help them. But in reality, how are you really helping them? But yeah, but before we get started on the article, because I'm about to go on a huge tangent, <laughs> tell us a little bit about your background, how you got into anthropology and ultimately how do you start studying um, the impacts of war? Um. Thank you uh, for your <laughs> personal comment. I've been um, doing interviews with veterans who spent time in Iraq, reflecting on the last 20 years. And I think your sentiment is shared by most people who choose to do an interview with me, that, um, that there was something delusional about the project to begin with. And they picked up on that right away. But of course, um, it's quite taboo for people to speak about that, especially in military circles. So appreciate your comment. I came to anthropology because of fashion. Um, I was a student at UC Davis and I had a dorm mate who was a really good friend who said, you have got to come to this anthropology class. This teacher wears the weirdest clothing. And it was Susanna Sawyer. And she wore these beautiful, bright colors, um, kind of the Ms. Frizzle of, of UC Davis. <laughs> And she also was would wear jewelry that her daughter made, um, who was you know in the single digits at the time. And so I came for the fashion, but I stayed for the lessons and took many classes from her, and and was introduced to anthropology um, as a general practice of understanding human difference and and sociality. Um, but also, I don't think it's a coincidence that I've always paid very close attention to the environment in my research because my mentors and teachers, starting with her, were really engaged in how the environment was um, conscripted in a lot of political violence as well. Um, and then you asked how I came to study war, and I, I guess the answer is I had to study war. It's what built the country I live in. You know, um, everywhere I go is the aftermath of war. I mean, um, one of my favorite running spots is Prophet's Rock here in Indiana. And that's where the Shawnee fought a final losing battle uh, against the settler soldiers. Um, my institution has major contracts with the DOD as do any universities, most, for most of the large research universities do. Um, so I'm surrounded by war all the time. And I was in junior high when 9-11 happened. And then I reached voting age in the wake of the 9-11 wars. It was a George Bush election. And one of the core platforms of the candidates was what to do about or in Iraq and Afghanistan. So I'd say at the time of my you know, political development, um, war was something people were talking about a lot. 
and in a lot of ways that disturbed me. And over the course of my intellectual life, I spend a lot of time trying to answer the question of how wars end. Um, and I would have really benefited from reading Patrick Wolf earlier in life because uh, the answer is they don't because war is not an event, it's a structure. And um, that seems like a relatively obvious conclusion now, but it took me many years to get to studying and thinking about war as a kind of structure. So in your article, you use the term less than lethal paradigm. Could you maybe describe what that term means to our listeners? Sure. Um, it's not new, but I think um, it's maybe more apparent in the United States. Um, the less than lethal paradigm is essentially a gaslighting project that shirks moral culpability for violence by playing with the line of where death is located, whether it's in discourse or in reality. Um, and like many scholars who critique um, the, the hypocrisy, but also the consistent gap between how people imagine themselves as being part of a liberal democracy and the actual coercive violence they practice globally. Um, I'm basically just saying, um, you can say you're doing, doing imperialism less lethally only if you discount certain people's deaths and um, also the project of making a claim about whether or not something is deadly or centering the idea that violence is somehow a binary between killing and not killing um, doesn't really hold up, right? Clearly regimes can be absolutely brutally violent and keep everybody breathing. So the idea here is that by decentering certain people's deaths, um, regimes can practice these kinds of coercive violence without moral culpability or detection. But on the other hand, perhaps we should be decentering death as the analytic by which we decide whether uh, something is brutal. Yeah, just thinking about that concept reminds me of uh, a conversation that I had with my grandfather growing up, and he was a veteran of, uh, of Vietnam. He was actually uh, wounded over there. He took a piece of shrapnel in, in, in combat, and he told me something pretty similar. Obviously, now it's, it's a bit different because now we're, we're saying, you know, it's their fault, this, that, whatever else. Right? And we're, we're, like you said, decentering the, the, the deaths and making ourselves a little less culpable for them. What he would tell me is that it was very much when you're, you know, when you're out there, the people with you are the only ones that matter. And anybody who you had to kill, that was their fault, because that's the only way to make it through that kind of action. Right? I mean... This is all secondhand. This is coming from somebody who talked to somebody who very much did not want me to go into the military. It was uh, something that I'd planned on doing. And that conversation paused me. Um, the fact that we're, we're changing, you know, and, and pushing the, uh, the blame onto the people that were even killing, that they were actually killing out there is, it's kind of abhorrent. Your article was a pretty big eye-opener and it's not like I didn't know this stuff was happening but the fact that I you know reading through what you were talking about and how the details and how they're doing it, it just it woke me up a little bit yeah I think that um something you're describing uh, might be important analytically too which is um how do we arrive at a moment when someone's existence is a threat Right, because you're just describing a situation where it's like, I'm standing in a place and some of the people I'm with are good people and some of the people I'm with, I have to kill. And that doesn't just happen, right? Like, um, and, and I think 
one of the things I'm doing in the article is describing these four moves that happen where you can arrive at a place where you can offset the, the responsibilities, but also the risks onto, onto other people. So like the first thing is that there's this model where we're framing war as a condition of peace, or in your example, framing your own survival as predicated on killing other people. And that happens through a preemptive logic, right? That like, if I don't shoot first, or if we don't launch our nuclear weapon first, or if we don't invade Iraq first, this imagined other thing that hasn't happened, and there's not necessarily evidence that it will happen, could happen. And that justifies being the offender as if it were defense. And that's kind of the first move. And then the second move is then to minimize killing or death. And that, and when I say minimize, I mean like at all levels. So like not keeping a body count, um, making sure that deaths are indirect. So, you know, metaphorically shooting to injure and then later on the, the actual death happens. Um, but then also disarming people's capacity for bearing lethal force, right? Who's allowed to threaten to kill and who isn't? I mean, if we look at um, police brutality in the United States, it's a very clear case of the less than lethal paradigm in which um, just existing uh, could justify having a gun pulled on you, whereas uh, you would never be allowed to pull a gun on a cop without getting shot, right? So mitigating who is allowed to manage lethal force and creating an extreme discrepancy. And then there's this next move that goes alongside it, which is there really is an economy of ideas and materials that are centered around non-killing forms of coercion. And um, you know whether that was like T walls in Iraq or um, policies like provincial reconstruction teams, which did a lot of economic restructuring work that ruins lives. Um, but the ruination of lives um, is a non-killing form of coercion. And, and Vietnam is a great example of the kind of ecological devastation that ruined people's lives um, for, is, and it continues to do so, but doesn't register. And then you can arrive to the fourth move, which is assigning responsibility to others for violence and to the recovery, right? This indigenization of violence. So you place, once you've ravaged a, a society or a community and then place responsibility on that community and say, okay, well, now that we've gutted your resources, now you can police the country and now you can um, provide healthcare. And, and then you can turn around and say, um, look, you're incapable without us. How could you be so bad at, um, at survival? And those four moves create that condition um, where you can have a, a soldier in one, in one society feeling that they have to kill the other soldier in another society first in order to survive. Yeah, I, it just, it always seemed absurd to me that you have a, a body of people, you know, that we call a government. It's a, it's a fictitious, fictitious organization. It's, it's a real thing, but it really only holds weight and power because we socially give it power. And the fact that that body of government can exist in our minds and order us to end the life of another person who not only do we not know, but if we got to know, you might actually like uh it, it's just it's when you when you think about it it's baffling so you you discuss reframing really war as a precondition for peace and you discuss how 
permanent colonial presence can can lead to chaotic civil war. Can you explain how U.S. occupation has the ability to induce civil war? So I wrote an article for Polar that gets into more detail about sectarian violence specifically and how it was spatialized and exacerbated by U.S. occupation. Um, but more broadly, um, what I argue in this paper is that basically when the infrastructure of a military occupation treats the entire population as an insurgent threat, that requires permanent colonial presence by the occupier or the training of uh, another proxy occupier um, and permanent militarization of the civilian infrastructure. Basically, um, there's no room left under those conditions of mass suppression for other kinds of social structures to form that aren't militarized social structures. In Iraq, the US gutted the public sector, um, dismantled all of the economic sectors that were part of uh, a national structure and privatized them. There was a major exodus of the intellectual class and a collapse of the middle class. The military was fired. So all of those centrifugal structures that kept Iraq, um, Iraq nationality strong and robust were dismantled. And then Iraq was essentially opened up to all forms of outside influence that have shaped it as it is today. Um, and, and what happens then is when foreign military suppression is the structural regime that's holding things into place, when it leaves, it's no surprise that we see um, you know, countries like Iraq or Afghanistan um, cascading into civil war. Uh, one of my interlocutors often refers to the difference between Saddam's dictatorship and the post-2003 Iraq that he's living in now is that chaos is the cruelest dictator. And what he means by that is the power vacuum and the opening up of Iraq has meant that US and other foreign interests in the region have left the country vulnerable and gutted people's access to the kind of public that they were once a part of. And so it's no surprise then that by 2018 in Iraq, the, the slogan of the mass protest then was we want a homeland or we want our country back. So this is partly an old school thing, right? We hear about divide and rule policies and social cleavages and the exploitation of population wide qualities of a country all the time. And this is what it looks like over the course of decades. And you also discuss things worse than death. And out of the interviews you perform, what example do you think stood out the most to you and, and felt the most meaningful? This is such a hard question to answer because I'm gonna give you two answers. Go for it. <laughs> um, I was sort of trying to decide between the, the real answer and then maybe the more obvious but also dramatic answer. Um, my conversations with people that I have now lived and worked with for what, like 15 years now, <clears throat> they often started with the question of how much risk my presence would pose to them, but also how much risk I was taking by living life the way they were living with them. And in a lot of instances, people's daily lives, or at least their seasonal lives, include really high risk journeys to, to their homes. And 
I would often say to kind of indicate my willingness to take on risks is like, worst case, I die. Like, worst case, it's all over. And that didn't land for the people that I that I was working with in Iraq because that measure of value, like that that only my individual life is at stake is such a degradation of what it means to participate in being alive. And there's so much more at stake than individual lives. So those conversations, um, perhaps their repetition is what moved me the most to really reorient my own thinking about, well, what is at stake? Um, the survival of your culture, um, the survival of your trees, making the next generation, like living ethically, um, not lose, not becoming bitter. Like there are all these other things that are, there's so much more at stake than just existing or not existing. And that binary uh, is kind of what I'm talking about when I talk about playing with the line between um, life and death, as if that line is the thing that matters when there's so much more at stake. And people that I live and work with are invested in intergenerational survival. They're outlasting this war on terror that's many decades long. They, they're looking many generations deep into the future and playing their role now well beyond their own individual and probably truncated lifetime. And those conversations were, were profound. Um, but I think from a, like an analysis of, of militarism, a more obvious example and maybe a like more dramatic example is just that torture is always an example of an intentional prolonging of life um, that is worse than death, right? Like the, the project of torture is to cause someone so much suffering that they want to make it end no matter what. They'll confess to something they didn't do, they'll ask to die, and they'll be deprived of their own right to die. And the kinds of less than lethal policies that were practiced in and around Iraq more broadly have deep roots in the logic of torture, which is um, the prolonging of life, but not with the intention of uh, quality. It's the prolonging of life with the intention to cause and maximize harm. And I was so struck over uh, the course of the last five and 10 years as uh, torture memos have come out and, and more and more um, classified documents have been declassified, the kind of investment in keeping um, people in Guantanamo Bay and, and other black sites alive and the, the kind of medical project of making sure someone doesn't die, even though they're living under conditions that I think they would define as worse than death, speaks to the investment in the less than lethal paradigm as a global project that as long as you can keep people breathing, you can ruin their lives more effectively or somehow more profitably. That's the kind of um, perversion of the valuation of life. And those conversations have really taught me that this isn't about um, taking away the number of people who have the right to life classifying people differently. It's about degrading the valuation of life to such a low point that we can arrive at a moment where the question of whether or not one lives or dies isn't actually the most relevant because there's so much more at stake and there's so much more in pain. That brings to mind uh, the question of viewpoint and how, let's say, Americans in general see life versus how 
others see life in other areas of the world, you have that culture shock, right? You mentioned, I think you mentioned it yourself when you said that worst case I die, that is something that's I've definitely thought before. I mean, one of the dumbest things I ever did was, um, you know, to, to impress uh, the, the girl who is now my wife. So I guess it worked. Um, <laughs> I swam across the American river in February. Uh, it was a bad idea. <laughs> I, I nearly died. And that was, a, that was what we'd said. Worst case I die. So she was an athlete. She was actually a swimmer on the team and a water polo player of two years. So she had experience. She was good, probably still dangerous, but, um, she was good. I had swam in backyard pools. That was about it. So, well, like you said, what other things matter and why don't we see that? Why don't we value that versus where you have other cultures or other peoples who put so much more emphasis on their, their group society than their own lives? Yeah, um, I, that's what capitalism does. It individually packages our bananas. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. um, I like. I think that actually there's a really clear answer, which is that that's what capitalism does. It it parses units um, into very small ones. Um, and I and I, I'm not sure that like all Americans experience this um, this kind of structure evaluation the same way. And I think in general, if you're a, if you're a targeted community, whether you're targeted as a terrorist or a criminal or whatever, a communist, whatever the category is for the season that you're living in, um, targeted people have to come to terms very quickly with the fact that they might not live as long. And so it forces clarity on this question. And I think, um, you know, I'm watching friends and neighbors experience this with climate change where, um, you know, this year's really hot and it's like, um, I'm really worried about my butterfly eggs. So I'm going to go and like hose down the plant um, because what's at stake isn't like just my own life. So I think not to say that we should all experience more duress, but that those under duress perhaps are clearer on what's at stake and what is at stake for all of us. So talking to people who are under duress for a really long time, like Iraqi farmers, for example, gives a, a new paradigm, but also just reminds us of the original paradigms of what it means to be alive, right? That like, there's more going on and, and we know that, but then we forget it because our, um, our lives are structured by capitalism in a way that makes it really, really hard to function unless we ignore all these other forms of living and relating and, and abandon them to some degree. When you say individually wrapped bananas, I just got this image of literally plastic wrapped bananas in the convenience store. Yeah, I went to the grocery store the other day and I was like, why are these apples individually sealed in plastic? Like, this is how we die. Like, this is ridiculous. And yet it kind of fits the model of um i mean it's like ultimately the less than lethal paradigm right there that like somehow the apple skin needs to be protected from the with another layer of plastic but actually that very layer of plastic is the thing that's going to kill the fish or the tree or the air that makes that apple possible and so you end up living in this security regime where everything's overprotected from an imaginary source of threat 
thereby being de destroyed slowly and not, it's not like anyone's out fumigating the apple trees, but by indirection, that's exactly what that plastic wrapped apple did. Yeah. So, so what's next? What research do you, are you currently working on or planning to work on? Sure. So I've been spending <laughs> the last, um, last year and a half working on this huge interdisciplinary project with a lot of different people, um, basically documenting the toxic burdens of war over the long haul. Um, and so it includes, there's a case control study on the incidence of birth defects in Fallujah, mm. which is quite controversial. Um, there's also a project mapping displacement histories and how people have been moved repeated, you know, over and over and over. Um, also a project taking sand and air samples to kind of measure and gauge the, the air quality and the soil quality. And then tracing some of those metals that we know were dropped in Iraq to their originary mines and sources, kind of looking at the broader supply chain of war as an ongoing structure. And um, it also means, and I guess this is kind of my role as an ethnographer, spending a lot of time with environmental activists and farmers, and then also mothers and doctors, people who are really trying to cultivate the next generation of life now on Iraq's landscape 20 years after 2003, and really try and understand the enduring impacts of landscape change on this next generation. And in general, I guess I'd say that um, if I could speak for everyone involved in the project, this is really about identifying the toxic load and how it's distributed um, and to whom. But um, what I'm most interested in as I've been talking to people and, and also watching the scientists and doctors and, and mapping experts think out loud and talk and work with things like spreadsheets and little canisters of sand, um, is that the role of anomaly in the way that we think about harm is really captivating my interest. And um, basically my next project, my next intellectual project is gonna be thinking about when and how people deploy the concept of anomaly to make a claim about harm. Um, an example would be that in order to prove that war is a cause of a health problem, any, any particular health problem, you kind of need like a before and after to work with. And war in that story would be an anomalous occurrence. But in a place like Fallujah, where there have been wars after wars after wars, war no longer serves the function of an anomalous event. It, it, it doesn't work as an anomaly anymore. And it drops out of the kind of juridical and scientific structures that we're used to when we look at linking cause and effect. Um, another example is the way that people make claims about birth defects um, is to say, well, I have all these healthy babies and then I had this, and then this event happened and now I have babies that are not surviving and they are anomalous. They have congenital anomalies, but also their existence is different from the norm. And what that does is require a perfect baseline. And if the baseline of harm is creeping up and up and up, then you have to have more and more extreme uh, anomalous events or experiences in order for it to count. And that is my point of fascination is the role of anomaly in making claims about harm because uh, we are finding that the sheer saturation 
of everyday forms of violence that people witness and experience are so prolific, it becomes very hard to make claims about harm without, without deploying the concept of anomaly. And yet we have to find a way to think about harm a little bit differently if it has become the baseline. Well, thank you both for hosting. Yes, thank you again for coming on uh, to our listeners and for those watching. Uh, you can find us at anthropotamus.com or Instagram and Twitter at anthropotamus. Thank you. Thank you all for listening. Distribution of Anthropotamus is in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. Please continue to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at anthropotamus for our latest episodes, show notes, and book discussion schedule.